Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Consumer collapse, U.S. growth falling 4.8% in Q1, the worst drop in over a decade. Body blow, Boeing CEO announcing 16,000 job cuts, saying recovery will take years. And immunity IDs, also called immunity passports, are ticket out of lockdown. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Good to be with you this Wednesday. And as you've got a slight indication there, we've got a jam-packed show ahead, including what COVID-19 immunity passports could actually work like and how healthcare workers around the world are tracking COVID-19 case outbreaks in real time. Plus, as you heard there too, earnings season continues. We'll also be hearing from Jay Powell today of the Federal Reserve giving his assessment on the economic outlook Ahead of that, we've had an indication. U.S. growth numbers for the first quarter, and they were bad. GDP falling at a 4.8% annual rate. That's the worst performance since the financial crisis and the first negative read since 2014. And, of course, the stay-at-home orders only began in mid-March. So that gives you a sense of how bad those final two weeks of March were. The second quarter, as a result, going to look much, much worse. But the big question now is what comes next and what more financial support perhaps is needed to kickstart the recovery and, of course, what that looks like. For now, U.S. futures remain higher after losing a little bit of ground yesterday. They've strengthened, too, in the past half an hour amid some encouraging news on Gilead's antiviral treatment for COVID-19. There's a lot of hope being placed there for me. There's still a discrepancy between what we're seeing on Wall Street right now and the weakness in the data we're seeing and will continue to see on Main Street. Investors, yes, they're responding to the cash stimulus, but I think they're also responding to hope, hope of a swifter and stronger recovery than at first feared. Will they be proved right? The Russell 2000 index of small cap stocks reflecting and reflect the domestic economy. They're up, as you can see, almost 10% in the past five sessions, admittedly from very beaten up levels. We'll keep an eye on those kind of signals. For now, the Asia trend continues. Most major indices are up some 2% or more over the past week. Signs of hope, it seems, amid the heartbreaking loss suffered globally over the past four months. Let's get to the drivers. Straight to the U.S. economy, too. Shrinking for the first time in nearly six years. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, it's all about the U.S. consumer and so many unknowns here. And the belief, I think, that the worst is still to come this quarter that we're currently in is going to be far worse. Absolutely. I mean, the first quarter numbers show us clearly the the first look at what could be a coronavirus recession. And that second quarter, you've got forecasts everywhere from 20 to 30 uh, percent contraction in the U.S. economy. Really, even worse than that, some economists, because we have shut things down. Uh, The government noting in its technical note on this GDP number for the first quarter that uh, the first quarter might not even capture all of the pain because uh, some of the underlying data um, won't be known yet. So, 
It just shows you how we have never been here before. This is a very unique kind of contraction, a very unique situation. The president, even yesterday, was saying he expects a V-shaped recovery. The third quarter will be great. The fourth quarter will be great. What really will determine that is how the aid gets into the pockets of American citizens and the bank accounts of small business. And it has been clunky is the the charitable way to describe it. Uh, But they're going to have to Washington will have to prevent a, a coronavirus recession from becoming a coronavirus depression. Yeah, I think clunky is the uh, polite way of saying it, quite frankly, uh, Christine, when people are desperately waiting for their cash. Yeah. Um, reopening is also going to be a critical piece of the, the jigsaw puzzle here and what that looks like under physical distancing conditions. The president using the Defence Production Act yesterday specifically towards meat processing plants. And there have been fears of, of workers getting sick in these processing plants and, and facilities having to be shut down as a result. It's not easy for the president just to be able to point the finger and say, guys, you have to open. And that's the challenge that we're going to face across all sorts of sectors. On so many different levels, too. I mean, look at it this way. Assume that all of the workers who who are asked to go back, go back. What happens if they all get sick? Uh, Then you're not going to be able to produce the meat anyway, right? So you could still have shortages and problems and you're spreading the illness. What if workers are afraid and they've seen friends get sick or coworkers die because of coronavirus and they don't want to go back? Do they have that right? Are there OSHA rules that will protect them in, in their workplace? It starts to get a little bit murky. Now, we know that the the uh, the malls are going to start opening, some of them, about 49 of them, this weekend, but with all kinds of social distancing rules. But will people feel comfortable to go to the mall? Are you going to want to try on a pair of sunglasses that somebody else just put down? That's kind of the interesting question about the consumer behavior. And we know the polling. There's a new NPR poll uh, this morning that shows that most people say they're not ready yet to go back to normal. Yeah, confidence risks, safety risks, legal risks. Yeah, there's a lot to come. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. You too, Julia. COVID-19 has delivered a one-two punch to Boeing. The plane maker giant already reeling from its 737 MAX crisis. Now with jet demand plunging, it's reporting a wider than expected Q1 loss. Shares of the aerospace giant are higher pre-market, however, as the company takes uh, new steps to steady operations. Claire Sebastian joins me now. The CEO calling this a body blow, Claire, it is because it was already a challenge company. But I look at some of these numbers and the fact that the CEO is saying it's going to take years and the cuts to the workforce. I think, reflect that. Yeah, Julia, the bottom line here is that Boeing is now making it very clear that they are not going to be able to continue in the current environment. And the the size that they are, they're having to cut 10% of their entire workforce. That's about 16,000 people. Now, in some areas, it's going to be even higher than that, at about 15% in commercial airplanes, in services, uh, in some corporate functions. That is because revenues this quarter have been hammered by the coronavirus, down some 26%. The company burned through $4.7 billion in cash. That was actually slightly better than some had expected. So uh, that's perhaps one of the reasons why the stock is up today. But they're not just cutting jobs, Julia. They are cutting production sharply across some of their most important uh, lines of planes. The 787 Dreamliner will be cut uh, from 14 to 10 this year and then 7 next year. So that's halving production. The 777 program, including the 777X, will go to 3 per month. Uh, And the 737 MAX is expected, the company says, to start at low levels this year and rise to 31 per month 
next year. That is a low rate considering before this they were producing at 42 per month uh, and talking about raising to, to more than 50 per month uh, after uh, that, that plane is, is approved for service. No update on its return to service, but the costs, Julia, for the 737 MAX continue to mount. The company is now uh, assuming it'll be an extra billion dollars for the production stoppage uh, that they're currently mm. in. That takes that number to five billion and takes the total, by my cal- calculation, to n- almost $20 billion in costs that many analysts expect it will actually be more than that. It's astonishing, isn't it, to see a share price reaction like this when you see numbers like this, but it shows you just how bearish and concerned investors had got already. What about needing support, government support? What was said, if anything, about that? So this was the other sort of big piece of news that we were waiting for, Julia. Mm. The deadline uh, for companies like Boeing, which are critical to national security, to apply uh, for funding from the Treasury is Friday. We didn't get anything really on that. They say they're still exploring uh, options when it comes to government funding. They're they're lobbying for that for the entire aerospace industry and for access to credit markets. So we don't know yet. We know that Boeing has been cautious when it comes to some of the strings attached for for Treasury funding. We know that they they took stock warrants uh, in some of the airlines uh, when they bailed them out and Boeing has been trying to avoid that. So we don't know yet if they're going to take government funding. They say they're still exploring it. It looks like it'll be that as well as as well as well them tapping the, the, the credit markets. Yeah, need all the support they can get, quite frankly. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Meanwhile, the CEO of Boeing rival Airbus has warned that the coronavirus pandemic is the gravest crisis the aerospace industry has ever known. The company swung to a loss after burning through more than $8 billion in cash just in the first quarter. Anna Stewart joins me now. The gravest crisis the industry's ever known. Another company saying, and we can't predict the future, but it's probably going to take years to get back where we started. And that has implications for jobs as well. We knew these results were going to be pretty dire. At the end of last week, the CEO wrote to staff saying the company was bleeding cash at an unprecedented speed. As you said there, we now have a number for that. It's burnt through $8.7 billion in the first quarter, nearly double actually uh, Boeing, as Claire was just saying. Um, They've done a lot already short term to try and bolster their balance sheet. They have cut production by a third. They have furloughed over 6,000 workers in France and the UK. Those workers being paid their salaries mostly by the government. Uh, They've also actually secured $16 billion in funding just last month. However, no new guidance ahead. There's so little visibility. And when you speak to analysts, Julia, uh, they'd say that in the next few months, we should probably see some sort of big restructuring plan for Airbus, like Boeing, like many of the airlines, because frankly, it's not a short-term issue in terms of the cash burnout. It's a longer-term issues in terms of what airlines survive and what are their order books going to look like. The order book at the moment is made up of companies that are on the brink of collapse. And even if those airlines all survive, even when lockdown is lifted, will people travel in the same way in the next few months? Absolutely not. The next few years, probably not. It is a bleak outlook with huge ramifications for these businesses. You know, it's so fascinating that you mentioned that. I was looking at the U.S. consumer confidence data this week, and within that, expectations for holiday bookings was back down to the level seen in the 1970s. That tells you something exactly in line with what you were saying about when we get back to some degree of normality in terms of world travel. What a challenge. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for your analysis there. 
Now, the collapse in demand has hit not just playmakers, but airlines themselves, too. The U.S. Southwest Airlines reported its first operating loss in 11 years. The company's CEO, Gary Kelly, outlined the challenges to Richard Quest. It's going to be a difficult recovery. And I think on top of just the health concerns uh, and sheltering in place and lockdowns and all the things that we're dealing with there, um, there's also a recession. And, uh, you know, do, do people have the means if they're, they may not be willing to travel, but do they even have the means to travel if they're unemployed uh, businesses or cutting travel, which is very typical uh, in a recessionary environment. However, again, we'll, we'll defeat this virus, but we'll get past this. I just used the Spanish flu of 1918 as an example, and you had the roaring 20s. Uh, shortly after that. So there's every reason to believe that we'll get past this. But, you know, companies and individuals are, go are going to feel some pain. Okay, let's move on. Lebanon's central bank governor defending his policies, claiming he helped the country buy time to enact essential reforms. The Lebanese prime minister is blaming the central bank for the country's financial crisis. This as violent protests erupt over Lebanon's economic hardship and the collapsing currency value. John Defteris joins us now with the details. John, they've dealt with political crisis, economic crisis, financial crisis, and then on top of it, COVID-19. It's perhaps no surprise that you're seeing that the public rebelling here once again. Yeah, and the rebelling under the name of a uh, hungry protest. Yeah. Uh, basically, Julia, because they're suffering so badly, and that defense by Riyad Salami, the central banker, uh, is a sort of uh, finger-pointing and defense that uh, drives them crazy and why they're willing to go back onto the street despite COVID-19. Uh, they're extremely frustrated after having those deadly protests in October that it has not led to change. So let's put a picture up of Riyad Salami, the central banker. He's been in power for 27 years. And then Hassan Diab, who's came in as a prime minister in January. He's accusing Salami of having better than $5 billion leave the country in the last year. Uh, Salami was suggesting today it's closer to $6 billion, but it didn't leave the country. They were bank deposits and they were pulled out to pay debts and loans. So you can see why you have this sort of frustration in the marketplace uh, today. Uh, the other thing is, people have to remember, this is an economy that contracted 6.5% in 2019, partly because it was that political stalemate. But the International Monetary Fund is suggesting it'll be double that in, in 2020, a negative 12%. So it's not going to get uh, better anytime soon as we see it today, Julia. Yeah, and it's where help comes from if they're willing to uh, ask for help from institutions like the International Monetary Fund. John, I want to tie this in more broadly to the pressure that we're seeing on oil prices and protests, pain that's going to be felt and is being felt in other nations in the region, Iraq, Algeria, a couple of examples here. What are we risking based on recent past? Well, recent past would suggest that they had frustrations in 2019 for a right. variety of reasons, but most of them have to do with the rising cost of food, Julia, uh, and youth unemployment. You mentioned Algeria, Iraq, you can add Iran, Sudan major protests, and of course, Lebanon. Now, the regional director of the IMF was saying that better than 100 countries have asked for support. Some of those countries I talked about have. Lebanon has not. They're refusing to go to the IMF for political reasons, and they defaulted on a $1.2 billion euro bond 
back in March. That's the first time ever for the country. And I've been exchanging emails, and I spoke with the former Minister of Economy for Lebanon, who said this is shaping up to be the Arab Spring, too, but he said he'd rather call it the Arab Firestorm because the coronavirus is putting so much pressure on healthcare systems and budgets that it could be worse than what we saw in 2011. That's the yeah. danger we're facing today. I was afraid to say it, but you said it for me. And uh, as far as Lebanon is concerned, principles mm. are expensive when your people are suffering. It's, it's terrible. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. All right, these are uh, the stories making headlines around the world. The Bollywood star Irfan Khan has died. He was best known for his roles in Life of Pi, Slumdog Millionaire and Jurassic World. Khan had been admitted to a Mumbai hospital for a colon infection. He was diagnosed with a rare cancer back in 2018. He was just 53 years old. China will hold one of its biggest political events on May 22nd. That's according to the country's state-run news agency. The National People's Congress was supposed to take place in early March, but was postponed as the country dealt with the coronavirus pandemic. The highly choreographed spectacle had not been delayed or suspended since the end of the Cultural Revolution in the 1970s. The British Prime Minister and his partner have announced the birth of their baby. The little boy was born in a London hospital earlier on Wednesday. Mother and baby are doing well, says a spokesperson. Congratulations to them. All right, we're going to take a, move, a break here on First Move. Still to come, the blueprint for reopening. John Hopkins University lays out a framework for a safe return to business. I discussed with the director of its Center for Health Security and tracing before testing data miner uses AI to predict coronavirus spikes simply by trawling the web and social media. We speak to the company's CEO. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York. It's still looking like a higher open for U.S. stock markets this morning. Despite that weak read on U.S. GDP growth for the first quarter, the American economy contracting almost 5% annualized just as COVID-19 lockdowns were getting started. Meanwhile, futures, I think, getting a boost from Q1 results from the likes of Apple and news from Gilead that its antiviral treatment for COVID-19 is showing promise. So certainly uh, investors liking the sounds of that in other earnings news. Meanwhile, auto giant Ford trading lower pre-market, forecasting a wider than expected $5 billion loss in the current quarter. And as we were mentioning earlier with uh, John Defterius, let's take a quick look at what's going on in the oil markets too. Wow, volatility once again trading higher this morning. WTI crude up some 26%, so double-digit gains for uh, oil prices this morning. Now, the data, Q1 data, underscoring the urgency, I think, for U.S. states to prepare the process of reopening. And that's exactly what we're seeing. In the meantime, experts at John Hopkins University have presented their blueprint for what's required. Let me walk you through this. Communities, they say, need rapid diagnostic tests for all symptomatic cases and widespread serological testing to identify those who've developed immunity and the ability to trace all contacts of reported cases. 
Let's discuss this. Dr. Tom Inglesby is the director of the Centre for Health Security at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Inglesby, great to have you with us to uh, talk through your blueprint for what's required here. What stood out to me, and I read the whole report, was the emphasis you place on tracing. And because you've watched what other nations have done around the world, talk me through this. Sure. Well, we've seen other countries have comparative success uh, in terms of keeping their outbreaks under relative control. Uh, countries like South Korea, uh, New Zealand, Austria, Denmark, Iceland, they're doing better than most of the world. And what they have in common is very strong public health programs that can trace the contacts of the known COVID cases. They're able to find them and then they're able to have them quarantined until the threat of infection passes. And so that's what we need to do in the United States. We, we do that on a normal day for other kinds of diseases like tuberculosis or a measles outbreak, but the urgency and the pace and the scale of COVID is so much larger that we're gonna have to really build up our contact tracing capabilities around the United States. Define build up. How many contact traces mm -hmm do you think are required in the United States? So we calculated uh, per capita how, how many tracers were working in various countries in the world for COVID, especially the countries that have had such success. And the range, um, they've ranged from countries that are smaller, have contact tracing workforces of 10, 20,000, but then China, had a contact tracing workforce closer to 300,000. So our estimate is that given where we are in this epidemic, we need something on the order of 100,000 contact tracers distributed around the United States in the coming year to be able to do the work we need to break, break transmission of COVID. It was quite interesting because you looked at New Zealand, you looked at Wuhan, you looked at Iceland as well, which I think is all places when people have been reading about this and watching on social media have popped out to people as places that have been successful in handling this. But when you mapped the numbers for Wuhan and based on what Wuhan did for contact tracing, the numbers in the United States are more like 265,000 contact traces. So why, why do you think 100,000 is enough? And it's, it's enough in terms of numbers, but why is that enough compared to what Wuhan did? We already do have some contact tracing workforces in place around the country. So state health departments, local health departments do have teams of people already doing that. Um, yeah, we, we basically tried to find a number that seemed practical and feasible. Uh, in China, they had many different kinds of people participating in that, in that crisis in Wuhan. And um, it may be that 100,000 is not enough. There have been some estimates that, that suggest the number should be higher. But that was the practical number that seemed like it sorted out between the various countries. Um, Dr. Inglesby, are you talking to the White House about this, to the White House task force or even individual states to get their sense of of whether they believe this is also the path that needs to be followed? Yes, our impression is that there is strong support at the White House and strong support in Congress for expanding contact tracing. It was part of the president's a plan uh, released about 10 days ago, the reopening plan. It, it um, 
strongly advise states to have robust contract contact tracing programs in place. And so I, there, I do think there's going to be support in Washington for helping states to acquire larger, much larger contact tracing workforces in the time ahead. When I spoke to you and introduced you in the beginning, I mentioned readily accessible testing as well. If I look at Harvard's blueprint for, for reopening, they're the ones that are saying, look, 5 million tests per day in early June, 20 million tests per July, and then safely reopening by August. Give me a sense of where your tracing plan fits in terms of numbers of tests required and timing for reopening based on what we're already seeing in the United States. So at this point in the U.S., we're testing about 1 million people a week. Most of that testing is concentrated on the sickest people, people in the hospitals and in pe people in nursing homes, people at high-risk healthcare workers. What we need to do is to expand the numbers of people who are tested to include those who are minimally ill or mildly or moderately ill. Most of those people right now have not been able to get a test because the, the bandwidth for testing has been too low for that. In order to be able to really get a handle on the epidemic, we need to expand testing to that mild and moderate group. And those are the people that we're really gonna have to focus on contact tracing. Right now, those people are not counted in our national totals, and we're not doing any contact tracing around people who we don't have a diagnosis for. So when we scale up contact tracing, they will be reacting to the positive tests that come up right. across the state. So you agree five million a day. Do you agree with Harvard or do you well, think less? I think I think that's a very ambitious goal. I've seen we've seen numbers that are probably in the near term, probably more um, achievable. But ultimately, if, if we're going to get to the point where businesses are going to be using testing, organizations are going to be using testing to screen people, we will need those kinds of high numbers. Right now, just focusing on people who are sick with COVID, we're gonna need at least three or four million tests per week, which is really far above where we are now. Yeah, and that's even before, to your point, we could start doing tracing in the kind of scale and numbers that you're talking about. There's work to be done. Dr. Tom Inglesby, stay in touch, please. Stay safe and great to get your Thank insights you. this morning. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, imagine scanning every single social media post available publicly worldwide, looking for clues then about dramatic events such as the outbreak of coronavirus. Well, that's what Data Miner does and did. And the CEO is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Julia Chasley and U.S. stock markets are open for trading on this Wednesday. As expected, we do have a stronger open this morning. Investors looking through today's week reading on Q1 GDP numbers. Of course, the numbers are already backward looking. The critical factor is, of course, we expect Q2 to be worse. But it is going to be interesting to see what Jay Powell has to say later on today. We've got the Federal Reserve releasing its latest policy statement. What does he have to say about the state of the economy and the impact, of course, of the trillions of dollars of stimulus that they've already added to this economy?
In the meantime, Google parent uh, company Alphabet helping boost tech stocks, seeing early signs that ad sales and search activity are stabilizing after plummeting last month. Paula Monica joins me now. Well, Paula, I have to say search activity, YouTube activity was buoyant. But what we know about this business is it's all about advertising spending. And so this is a, an interesting sort of snapshot of what advertisers are thinking going forward about the health of the economy and how willing they are to spend okay signs perhaps. exactly yeah. yeah i think the encouraging sign, julia is that google cfo ruth brett did point out during the uh, earnings conference call last night that yes there was a steep drop off in march as the covid 19 pandemic really hit the u.s kind of with a full force but things are starting to stabilize in april and you mentioned youtube YouTube ad revenue in the quarter, despite COVID-19, was up 33% yes. to $4 billion. This is a legitimate business for the company right now, without question. And obviously, I think any media company realizes that you know the power of YouTube is legitimate. Yeah, absolutely. And dragging Facebook higher, of course, too, another big uh, advertising spender reliant company. It's quite interesting when I look at the tech outperformance that we've seen. I was doing some maths on this. Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Google and Facebook now make up over 20 percent of the S&P 500. The last time the concentration was like that, I think you have to go back to the, the mid 1970s. And we were probably talking about GE and IBM and AT&T. Actually. <laughs> yeah. What do we think of what we're seeing? Yeah, it's interesting because there have been people that I've talked to in the past who have expressed concerns that so much of the market is concentrated in this handful of tech stocks and what will happen if investors leave them in mass. But we haven't really seen that, even though mm. big tech got hit by the slump in the broader market in March, concerns about COVID-19. You haven't seen this full-scale ETF meltdown where the big index funds are collapsing because people are pulling out of all those tech stocks. It just hasn't happened. And I think that's really a testament to the fact that all of those companies that you've mentioned, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, of course, they're all very strong companies financially. They have healthy balance sheets, a lot of cash they're putting to work, not a lot of debt. and they are growing their earnings. You could question the valuation of an Amazon in particular, but this isn't like 2000 where the market leaders weren't profitable and everything was a hope and a dream of one day being profitable. These are now companies that are incredibly profitable to the point where there's a lot of concern about how much power they have over the tech sector and broader American economy. Yeah, it's such a fascinating point. Innovation in times of crisis for me. And they're also about connectivity. Even when we're physically distant, you need these things more than ever, quite frankly. And consumer behavior is dictating that these guys are powerful for me. So it, it sort of fits the narrative, too. Um, hmm. Will it continue? We'll see. Paula Monica, thank you so yeah, much for joining us. In the, yeah, strong gaming, too. So. I, I agree. Interesting times. Paula Monica, thank you for that. All right. Speaking of social media, artificial intelligence has played a key role in predicting the spread of coronavirus. And our next guest founded a tool that helped detect its apparent origins. 
data miner harvests the world's publicly available social media content and alerts businesses, healthcare workers in the public sector and journalists in real time. Data Miner issued its first coronavirus-related alerts on December 30th last year, following eyewitness reports on social media of a SARS-like outbreak in Wuhan, China. Six days later, the World Health Organization released a public warning about a pneumonia-like incident on January the 5th. And two days later, on the 7th, China itself identified the virus as a novel coronavirus. You can see that after that point, the surge then in social media traffic exploded worldwide. Now the company is warning it can identify hotspots in U.S. states, which are currently in the process of reopening. Ted Bailey is the CEO of Data Miner, which has clients in over 70 different countries. And I should tell you, for transparency, CNN is one of those clients. Ted, fantastic to have you on the show and fascinating to see what you're doing. Just start by explaining what you were watching precisely in China and specifically in Wuhan when you realized something unique was going on? Well, Julia, this really is the first pandemic of the age of social media and information is moving as fast as the virus itself. And as you said, that started from the very beginning when the virus was first simmering in Wuhan, not on the radar of health officials, not on the radar of the world at large, data miner detected and delivered the first digital warning of the outbreak. The way we did this was we found eyewitness on the ground social media accounts in Chinese in Wuhan. And these included firsthand accounts of what people were seeing and hearing in hospitals. They included cell phone pictures, of people on the ground taking pictures of Chinese health officials in suits disinfecting the landscape. So essentially what we were able to do is find the earliest information in social media and that's how we were able to warn our clients, public sector organizations and enterprises an entire week ahead of the first CDC report. And as you said, that's not the end of it. As the virus spread across the world, data miner also first detected an outbreak in South Korea, in Iran, then ultimately in Italy and in Spain. So what we're seeing here is that eyewitness on the ground social media combined with real time artificial intelligence can create what we call ground truth. In other words, a accurate on the ground understanding of what's happening. And we deliver that to our clients and deliver it to them 24 hours a day. Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about whether it's businesses and them trying to plan for risk events going forward, or I know you're also working now with with healthcare workers as well around the world, just to give them a sense of upcoming outbreaks based on, on the data that you're seeing. It's a combination of all these things and it's a it is an alert mechanism and it's being used in this um, outbreak and this uh, this crisis in particular. The key to all of this is how we apply the computing power of artificial intelligence. Believe it or not, we detect billions of public data units a day 
across 10,000 different public data sets in 150 different languages. And we perform, in reality, trillions of real-time computations to find this needle in the haystack. A lot of people, Julia, are talking about a field that's getting a lot of, of buzz called outbreak science. Hmm. In a way, data miners always specialized in outbreak science. Not an outbreak in the specific context of a disease, but an outbreak in the context of the information landscape. In other words, detecting early information when it first emerges long before it, quote, goes viral, long yeah. before it is on the radar of mainstream sources. I mean, in this case, it was days. And what we've learned, I think, subsequently is hours matter, days certainly matter. You warned on March 30th, of concern, I believe, in 14 different U.S. states that outbreaks were likely. We then saw spikes in cases of COVID-19 in all of those. You also warned in the last week of, of April, the 23rd of April, about small cities and metro areas in the United States, including in states that we're now seeing going through the process of reopening. What have you seen specifically, particularly in states like Georgia and Florida in the last six days or so since that alert? Well, Julia, as you mentioned, many of the available resources and data out there have been lagging indicators. The ground truth that data miners been able to provide has been a leading indicator. As you mentioned, we were able to pinpoint 14 U.S. states that were showing a pattern that suggested a pre-outbreak state. And within just seven days of that study, those states had in fact started to see exponential case count growth. And then last week, as you note, we published another study that specifically identified 22 hotspots in small metropolitan areas and rural counties, specifically across the states that are in fact reopening and easing social distancing measures. What we've seen is that in the specific states you mentioned, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, in just a week since we published that study, cases have started to grow and the rate of case growth has increased in each of the hotspots that we detected in those states, suggesting that governors and suggesting that governments and businesses need to pay a lot of attention to the value and perspective that data, AI, and social media can provide. Yeah, I know. And I know you're not talking to our state governors either, but I think perhaps they should be listening to you. We have about 30 seconds left, but I do want to mention that you also have had success in predicting other events, some very tragic, like the Parkland shootings, also the California wildfires. So it's not just about COVID-19, it's, it's other early warning system alerts that you've, you've seen in the past too. Well, as you said, Data Miner has long warned our clients mm. far ahead of other sources. On average, we alert four hours ahead of mainstream sources for events across the world delivering an alert on the outbreak of the California wildfires and delivering an alert on the Parkland shooting, 
which enabled first responders to get to the scene and protect students quicker, are two of our greatest success stories. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is vitally important. Whatever we can do to help the uh, first responders and our healthcare heroes is, um, is pretty phenomenal. Ted, stay in touch, please, and stay well. And uh, thank you for the work that uh, you and your uh, team are doing. Ted Bailey, the, the CEO and founder of Data Miner. All right, we're going to take a break. But up next here on First Move, digital immunity passports. How do they work? And is there a privacy trade-off? Will we be willing to accept it? The UK government's asked one biometric AI company to investigate the potential. And we'll talk to them next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Earlier this month, the UK government suggested that immunity passports could pave the way out of lockdown. The idea is that a phone-based digital certificate could identify those who have recovered from COVID-19 and allow them to return to some form of normal life. To flesh that idea out, the UK government turned to AI company Onfido, which uses biometrics to digitally verify identity. Joining us now is Hussein Kasai. He's the CEO and co-founder of Onfido. Great to have you with us. I'm very excited about talking to you about this. We'll firstly separate question marks over the validity of immunity tests, because viewers will be wondering about that too. Talk to me about how a passport would work. It's good to be on. The immunity tests are still yet to be worked out. But once (laughs) we get to a stage where there are immunity tests that can be done with a higher degree of uh, accuracy, the intention with an immunity passport is to have individuals who have been tested to prove that they've been tested and to prove that the test results belong to them, but crucially to do so without sharing any personal information. How, how is that possible? So I've got my immunity test. I've got Im- antibodies in my system. I have a mobile phone. You have my biometrics, facial recognition technology. Piece those things together. Sure. It's... A, so along with partners, we're helping governments, authorities, employers and others to be able to give their citizens, employees, others a presentable proof of immunity. So that if, in your example, it were to be on a smartphone, on an app that's developed by a health authority or other authority, on there, there would be a QR code. And for instance, if it's I'm the person who's been tested and I'm coming to you, let's say you're at a reception uh, and I'm looking to enter the building, you would take a scan of my QR code, and then on your system, you would see the results, and that would be a red, amber, green, or any configuration that is developed, along with a photo of my face, for example, and then you'd be able to know that I am immune, and that my, or at least that's what the results suggest at the time, and that that belongs to me, but without having to see any of my personal information, yes, date of birth, name, and so on. And therein lies the key, because when you attach the idea of facial recognition technology and governments and government issued ID, like a passport, for example, all sorts of alarm bells start going off about how much information the government, the workplace has to have on you. And we're so sensitive about that when it's our health. Do we overlook that or is the key part of this that those things can be protected? Privacy can be protected while also giving you the luxury of an immunity scan. Absolutely, and that's been our key focus. The the idea of immunity certificates is not new. In most countries, when children are registering for a new school, they have to show a certificate at the point of registration of having had vaccinations for for measles, 
polio and other diseases. This is in a similar example, but if it's digitized, it's done in a more effective way. And the question becomes, if you're looking to give entry to someone to enter a building or for another reason, then all they really need to know is that whatever the authoritative test re testing is for that community or that country, that has been granted to you, so you are able to have a presentable immunity uh, certificate, and that that belongs to you. And that's essentially the core of what we do is binding the two. So traditionally, what we've done over the last eight years is help individuals sign up to online banks and car rental and, and payment platforms and, and things like that. So usually it's to show your, a copy of your government ID as you're registering on these apps and a selfie video. And then we're using technology to verify that that government ID seems genuine and it's not fake, and that your face matches the photo so that it, it belongs to you. The step here is that to now bind that to a digital uh, certificate. Very quickly, because we have to go. How long does this take? One year, two so years? The, the process of enrolling is as little as sort of under a minute. But the crucial first step that is still being worked uh, across the world is to find te self-testing kits, ideally. Precisely. <laughs> Absolutely. Hussain Sai, great to have you with us. Uh, keep us posted on your progress. The CEO and co-founder of Onfido there. All right, coming up after the break. To survive one pandemic is pretty remarkable. Two, well, that's pretty breathtaking. A superhero story next against all the odds. Welcome back to First Move. Before we wrap up the show, I'd like to share one woman's remarkable story of survival. Angelina Friedman has now survived two pandemics in her lifetime. During the 1918 Spanish flu, Angelina was born on a ship traveling from Italy to the United States. And now, after having survived cancer, the 101-year-old has just beaten the coronavirus. Her daughter says she ran a fever on and off for several weeks, but now she's back to herself and looking to get back to her crochet. To Angelina Friedman, who's clearly never dropped a stitch and survivors of COVID everywhere, we wish you all a very rapid recovery. What an incredible smile and what an incredible woman. We will get through this and we will be back same time, same place tomorrow. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.